One of the greatest questions in the world is this. What is the greatest problem that we are facing today? Now, there are many presidents and leaders throughout the centuries that have tried to come to grips with this question and answer this question in light of the various uh, things that are happening in the world. So I would ask you, if someone was to ask you, what is the greatest problem uh, that we are facing today? And in 2017, millennials uh, participated in the World Economic Forum's Global Shapers Survey. And the question was asked, what is the top 10 concerning world issues? What is the top 10 uh, most concerning world issues? What concerns you the most concerning the world itself? And here are the top 10 according to millennials. Number 10, lack of economic opportunity and employment. We don't have any jobs. Number nine, safety, security, and well-being. Number eight, lack of education. Number seven, food and water security. Number six, Ray, you would love this one, government accountability and transparency, uh, <laughs> transparency slash corruption for all those who like conspiracy theories. Uh, number five, religious conflicts. Number four, poverty. Number three, inequality, income, discrimination, things of that nature. Number two, large-scale conflict or wars. And the number one uh, most concerning world issue, according to millennials, is this climate change and destruction of nature. So climate change and destruction of nature. Now, if I was to ask you, or if we were to ask uh, others, what is the most concerning issue that we face today? Other answers might be that we need to have one uniform idea of the meaning of life. That we need to know what we are on this earth for, where did we come from, where are we going. Others might say that I need, we need personal happiness. We need to find our own personal happiness. And if it's not our own, then there needs to be one uniformed idea of what is personal happiness rather than leaving it to our subjective opinions. Others might say that we need to find a cure for various diseases. The fact that we haven't found a cure for cancer or for these various diseases that kill millions and thousands every year is the one concerned, is the one concerning world issue for today. The saints, according to the Bible... According to God's word, none of those are the most concerning issue in our world today. In fact, the Bible screams to us that the most concerning issue in our world today is not our government. 
is not our lack of income, is not our lack of jobs, it's not the climate change and the destruction of nature, but it is ourselves. That we and we alone are the issue. That we and we alone are the concern, not just for now, but for the future and for our future's future. That the greatest need that we have in this day and age is that we are sinners in the hands of an angry God. That is the greatest issue. That is the greatest concern in our day today. The Apostle Paul says it clearly in Romans 1.18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. That's our greatest issue in our world today. That the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness. We all fit into that category. That the wrath of God, as Jonathan Edwards has said vividly, that the bow of God's wrath is bent and the arrow made ready on the string and justice bends the arrow at your heart. Is that the wrath of God, his justice is on the bow and it is bent toward your heart that you are going to be destroyed by this holy God because of your lack of holiness. You are going to be destroyed by this righteous God because of your lack of righteousness. There is nowhere you can escape. There's nothing that no one can do in and of themselves. The wrath of God, our greatest need, is that we need to be forgiven. Our greatest need is that we need someone to come in our place to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Our greatest need is not that we need a better president, that we need a better government, that we need a better society of people who love each other and who are at peace with one another, that in the Middle East there will finally be peace. And all those various things that people like to throw to say that if this changes, that everything will be better. But in fact, what the Bible tells to us is that there has been change, as they're not saints. God has sent forth his son to change not just people, but to change the entirety of the world. You see, when Adam fell in the garden, the entirety of creation fell as well. And the creation now moans for that day when it will be restored, when it will be anew. And as we come to our passage this evening in Romans chapter 8, 1 through 4, what we have for us is a vivid picture and portrait of our greatest problem and the one who has come to solve our greatest need. What we have in chapter in verses one through four is the apostle Paul laying out for us the glorious picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ. What we have in verses one through four is 
us who are in Adam who need to be saved from under the condemnation in Adam. And then we have the solution that God sends forth his son in the very likeness of Adam to save those who are in Adam. And then we have the very reason why this all happened. So that we, so that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. That Christ comes, not for himself, but for us. That he may give us his spirit, that we may walk according to the spirit and not in our flesh. So saints, if you are uh, able, please stand for the reading of God's word. And we just have four glorious verses before us this this morning. Romans chapter 8, 1 through 4, a passage of scripture that I'm sure all of us are aware of and we're familiar with. The word of the Lord says this. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in his flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Saints, you may be seated. If you're taking notes to help us understand these four glorious verses, I just have two points. The first is the present reality. The present reality. And the second is the glorious past accomplishment. So number one, our present reality, and number two, the glorious past accomplishment. Present reality and the glorious past accomplishment. Consider with me verse one of our text this morning. The Apostle Paul says that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, I want you to notice, saints, that Paul starts off chapter 8 with the word, therefore. Anytime you see a word like that, therefore, or for, or sense, or those type of words when we read our Bibles, we have to ask, what is therefore, therefore? What is sense doing there? What is for doing there? What is by doing? What are these words doing there? And what the Apostle Paul is doing is he's building upon an argument. He's coming to a crescendo. He's coming to the conclusion of an argument that he's made in Romans chapter 7. In Romans chapter 7, the the Apostle Paul explained the battle that rages with the believer. Let me read verses 15 to 25 for you. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do, uh, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. 
for I do not want to do good I want or for I do not do the good I want but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing now if I do what I do not want it is no longer I who do it but that sin that dwells within me so I find it to be a law that when I want to do right evil lies close at hand for I delight in the law of God in my inner being But I see in my members another law raging war against the law and making my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? But thanks be to God through Christ, Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. Saints, is this not a vivid picture of ourselves? That there is a battle, that there is a war that rages within us between two parties, between two laws, the law of the spirit and the law of the flesh, which is our sin. As we come to Romans chapter 8, the apostle Paul wants to make one thing clear to the believers who have this war raging within them. The Apostle Paul wants to make one thing clear in light of this constant struggle that the believer goes through every single day. That in light of the believer's past, present, and future sin, that in light of the believer giving into flesh, giving into the law of sin every single day, thereby disobeying God, the Apostle Paul says with emphatic tone, that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. In in light of this inner struggle, in light of us giving in to temptation, the Apostle Paul says, but there is now no condemnation For those who are in Christ Jesus. And these words, saints, really encapsulate the entirety of the letter to the book of, to to the letter to the church at Rome up to this point. The apostle Paul has been arguing that we are under the wrath of God and there is nothing that we can do to save ourselves. That we are only justified before God. By an alien righteousness. By someone who is not us, but Jesus Christ alone. That we are justified by work or by faith alone in the perfect works of Christ alone. That's how we are justified. That's how there is no longer no condemnation. Because someone has come in our place. And saints, when you, we consider the very first words, the very uh, verse one of chapter eight of Romans chapter eight. Are these not the sweetest words anyone could ever hear? One has said that these are the most sweetest words in the entire Bible. If, if the book of, if the letter to the church at Rome is the, the, the greatest letter ever written, verse one of chapter eight is the diamond that shines. In the greatest letter ever written. 
There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Saints, I hope that you feel the weight of that statement. The Apostle Paul, in just one verse, he pulls out the diamond of our salvation. The Apostle Paul, in just one verse, declares that those who are in Christ are justified. Those who are in Jesus Christ, there is no longer condemnation. Now, there's a few things that we must notice from this verse. And the first thing is the present reality. And we see that when the Apostle Paul says, now. He says, now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Not in the future. There will be no condemnation. You do not have to wait till the end to know that there is no condemnation. But he says, now. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is a present reality to the saints that we do not have to wait till the last day, but we can know right now if we are justified before holy God and saints in Paul's day, this was a scandalous thing to say. You see, to those who practice Judaism and even now, even to those who practice Roman Catholicism, for you to say that you can know now that you are justified is the height of presumption. How can you possibly know now that you are justified, that God sees you as righteous? For that is an event that is held off until the last day. You can't know if you are Perfectly righteous before holy God because that is an event that happens at the end time. It happens at the judgment day. But also, Paul, who are you to say that there is now no condemnation? How can you speak on the behalf of God? Only God can declare if someone is righteous. So where do you get off saying that now there is no condemnation. That doesn't make any sense. In fact, to say that you can have judgment day certainty now cuts against the entire pharisaical law. What do you you mean, Paul, that now there is no condemnation that is exclusively reserved for the last day and for God and God alone? You can't know that, and that event hasn't happened yet. But what Paul is saying is that in time, last day judgment has already been inaugurated and begun in history. Think about that, saints. That the in time eschatological judgment of God has intruded in time and space. It has come. And what Paul is saying, saints, is that the righteousness that you need Because everyone knows that in order for God to declare us justified, in order for us to have no condemnation, we need to have a fitted or a perfect righteousness. That God will see us and declare us justified. And Paul is saying that the righteousness that you need, 
to stand before holy God on that last day, that that righteousness that you need is the righteousness that has already appeared in time and space in the person and work of Jesus Christ. That the righteousness that you need to stand before holy God, for him to declare you justified, acquitted of all charges, has appeared in his son, Jesus Christ. Paul is saying we can be certain now of what, of how it will go for us then by looking at the person and work of Jesus Christ. Jesus in his life lived a life of of complete obedience to God's law. He was the only one fitted who can ever fulfill the righteous demands of God's law. And in his death, Christ suffered on the cross the end times wrath of eternal condemnation. Maybe you've never thought of the cross this way, saints. Yes, we believe that there was an exchange happening, right? That the righteousness of Christ is being imputed to all those who are unrighteous. And all those who are unrighteous, their unrighteousness is imputed to the one who was righteous indeed. Very righteous, we know as double imputation. But also what we see on the cross is that Christ absorbs in his body the last day judgment wrath of God against sin. That very wrath of God that was reserved for those who are lawbreakers, who are unrighteous. That very wrath of God that will be poured out upon them on the last day. Christ on the cross absorbs in his flesh and he takes it upon. The wrath of God that was bent toward you. Christ turns that arrow toward himself and he takes it upon himself. And we receive the righteousness of Christ by faith. How can Paul say that now you can know for certain that you are justified before God? How can, where does Paul get off saying this? Because the one who bore that end time wrath of God on the cross is raised from the dead, signifying that his perfect sacrifice was accepted by God and all those who place their faith in him receive that same perfect acceptance by God. How can Paul get off saying that now you can be sure that you are justified before holy God? You don't have to wait till the last day because Christ was raised. That's how you know. Yes, he absorbed the last day wrath of God, but death could not keep him in the grave. God accepted his sacrifice and we see that acceptance as he publicly raises his son from the dead signifying that all those who are found in him are eternally justified by faith alone. That's how we know that the end has a bright future. That's how we know that God in the end will not look upon us and curse us and send us to hell. That's how we know that in the end we will not receive the wrath of God. Saints, do you understand that? That you were under the wrath of God. Because Christ has been raised. And because we are in union with him, we were raised as well. 
Therefore, now no condemnation for all those who are found in him. Saints, this is a, this is a present reality. This is yours right now. As we speak, this very second moment and hour, that if you have placed your faith in Christ alone, right now there is no condemnation for you. Praise our great Savior. We do not have to wait. We do not have to go through purgatory. We do not have to do these, these, these things in order to cleanse us, to make us fitted to stand before holy God. For Christ sits at the right hand of the Father, makes intercession on our behalf, not simply by prayers, but by his presence alone. This is a present reality that we must take hold of, that Paul wants us to see. And notice now, saints, the present declaration that there is now no condemnation. That there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, this begs the question, what we were condemned for? And who were we condemned by? And of course, you know that we were condemned by God. We were under the righteous wrath of God. That the righteous wrath of God hung over every one of our heads. That we all deserved justice. And when I say justice, I don't mean that justice that pleads in our favor. But I mean the justice that we rightly deserve. We sinned in Adam. We are condemned in Adam and with Adam. We violated God's holy law and we rightly deserve that justice of infinite punishment. That's what we deserve. We don't deserve to be saved. We deserve to be damned to eternal fire. We all, friends, come out the womb already condemned. In fact, at the very moment of conception, you stand as an enemy before holy God. We all come out the womb outside of the grace of God. And saints, that is the very fundamental problem with the world. Is not that we have a bad president, we have a bad government, we need to do better as far as climate change and our nature. We need to preserve the animals. We need better jobs. We need more income. Is that we stand outside of the grace of God because we are fallen in Adam. That's the fundamental issue with the world. That everyone outside of Christ is condemned. Condemned. Everyone outside of Christ will see the wrath of God if they are not saved by grace alone. Every single one. But to the Christian, to those who are of the faith, the Apostle Paul says there is no condemnation. To the Christian, to those who have bowed their knee to Christ and repented of their sins, the Apostle Paul says there is no condemnation. Where we once stood guilty, we now stand innocent. Where we once stood condemned, 
we now stand justified. Where we once stood with chains shackled down from head to toe, we now stand free in Christ. Now, when Paul says there is no condemnation, that doesn't mean that you can go on and do what you want and sin as you, as you, as you please. For the apostle Paul has said already that should we sin that grace may abound? No. Because there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus doesn't mean that we go on and we keep sinning. It doesn't also mean that you will never sin again. Because there is no condemnation found for you, that doesn't mean that you will never ever sin again. Saints, you will sin again. In fact, you probably sinned before you got here. And you're going to sin when you leave. You will sin again. But that's not what Paul is saying. He's also saying that you're never going to have to repent of your sins. As Luther has said, the Christian life is a life lived of daily repentance. So what does Paul mean? He means in the final analysis that sin does not define who you are, but it is Jesus Christ and his perfect righteousness that defines who you are. That's why I get so hung up when Christians go off and saying, well, I'm just a sinner. No, you're not. You are a saint in Christ. God does not see you in Adam. He sees you in the beloved. You are in Christ. You are saved in Christ. And if you are in Christ, then walk, talk, and act like you are in Christ. Now you might say, well, I don't feel like there's no condemnation. Paul addresses that well as well. You might say, I don't feel like I have peace with God. That although this is, this is true, and I amen it, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen that, brother. But I don't feel that. Saints, the Apostle Paul is not speaking to your psychological state. He's not speaking to your feelings, but he's pointing out an objective truth. Regardless of what you feel, regardless of what you think, that this is true. That there is therefore now no condemnation whether you feel it or not. Regardless of your daily battle with sin, saint, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Regardless of your daily giving in to sin, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Regardless of your past, present, and future, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Saints, do you feel the weight of these glorious verses that there is nothing that we can ever do there is nothing that we can ever be that can remove this objective truth and reality that on the account of christ and him alone there is no condemnation none when paul means no there is none it's been removed The barrier between holy God and sinful man has been abolished in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is that bridge between sinful man and holy God. And on his cross, he takes sinful man and he takes holy God and he reconciles them together. 
There is now no. There will forever be no. Condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And lastly, look at the last words of verse 1. In Christ Jesus. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Not for those who have completed the works of the law on their own behalf. Not for those who go to hungry and homeless every Saturday. Or to go to church every Sunday. Or who pray every single day and read their Bible and go out a street evangelizing. And those who have the greatest converts of those evangelists that go out and preach the gospel. But in Christ, in Christ alone, there is no condemnation. Not in your faith alone. And not even in grace alone. But in Christ alone. There is no condemnation. Faith does not save you, saints. Grace doesn't save you, saints. Jesus Christ in his perfect life, death, and resurrection is what saves you. How do we get to Christ? Yes, it is by grace. It is by, uh, through grace, by faith, and all those things, but it is Jesus Christ It is for us to look away from our church attendance, to look away from our testimony, to look away from our evangelism, to our theological knowledge, look away to our ability to obey the law. But the basis of our justification before holy God, the basis of Paul saying that there is now no condemnation is in the God man, Jesus Christ and him alone. Let's now consider the second point, which is past accomplishment verses two through four say this for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in christ jesus from the law of sin and death for god has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh But according to the spirit, after Paul has declared to the believer that there is now no condemnation, after he has declared that the believer is justified before holy God, after Paul has declared the beautiful truth of the person and work of Christ and what he has done in removing us from the condemnation, he says in verse two and three, For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh. Now what Paul is going to do here, he's going to explain the how. How is there no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus? What actually happened? What was the event that led up to you being justified? How did this all happen? Now, there's three things the Apostle Paul wants us to see in verse 2, and we'll consider them as subpoints. The first subpoint is this the curse of the law. The curse of the law. Notice the language Paul uses when describing the law. He says in verse 2, the law of sin and death. 
And in verse 3, he says, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. Here, Paul is establishing for us how the law functions in the life of the unbeliever. Now, saints, of course, we know that the law is good. The law is holy. The law is righteous. The law reflects the righteous character of God. We are to obey the law. For it is that roadmap for us for holy living. We delight in the law. But to the unbeliever, the law is anything but. To the unbeliever, to those who are in Adam, the law is wicked. The law is scary. The law makes you tremble. The law is a nightmare. The law condemns. The law reveals how sinful you truly are. And one, and if one is going to live their life trying to perfectly obey the law in order to earn a perfect righteous standing before holy God, the apostle Paul says in verse 2, that it only leads to more sin. It only leads down one road, death. That the law only leads to more sin because it points out how sinful you truly are. It tells you that you can't do this. There is no possible way that you can fulfill any of this. And this will only lead down a road of death. But in fact, the law was never intended to justify you. The law was never intended to set you free. The law was never intended to have salvific power. There was only one purpose of the law, and that is to drive you to a knowledge of your own sinfulness and then drive you to the knowledge of Jesus Christ. That's what the law was intended to do. Simply put, the law was to show you that you are a lawbreaker and then point you to the one who was the law fulfiller. And Paul adds more emphasis to that in verse 3. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. Meaning, we are incapable of obeying the law because of our sin. We and our flesh, because of our sin, weakens us to even attempt to obey the law. We can't obey the law because we are sinners in Adam. Our sin weakens us to obey the law. John Gill says, the weakness of the law is not from itself, but from man. Human nature is so weakened by sin that it is incapable of fulfilling the law. We are so damaged and weak in our sin that we are incapable of fulfilling and obeying the law. Friends, in your flesh, it is impossible for you to fulfill the law. In your flesh, you cannot fulfill the law. You cannot perfectly obey the law because you are a sinner. And this is what the Apostle Paul is wanting us to see. That the law only leads to sin and death. And we, in our sinful flesh, are too weak to obey the law. The law can't justify sinners. It only brings death. So friends, how is it that you can view yourself as free from the law's curse? You are condemned by the law and sin. So how is it that you can view yourself as free from sin's guilt and power? If in your flesh you are unable to fulfill the righteous demands of the law, 
then how is it now that there is no condemnation for you? Which leads to our second subpoint: the work of Christ. How is it that in your flesh, by the way, God can say there is no condemnation? Verse 3, for God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in his flesh. How are we freed from under the curse of the law, saints? God sends his son in the likeness of our sinful flesh to do what we could not do. And that is offer perfect obedience to God. And to do what the law could not do. And that is condemn sin. The eternal son came, as Paul says here, in the likeness of sinful flesh. Very interesting that he uses those words. In the likeness of sinful flesh. Now, that doesn't mean that the second person of the blessed triune became a sinner. He did not take on a nature that was corrupt. A nature that had a lack of righteousness. But what it speaks to is the true human nature of Jesus Christ. The old boys would say he came in the likeness of sinful flesh, not in sinful flesh. He came in the likeness of sinful flesh. But he was not, never once was a sinner. He is holy, harmless, and undefiled. He came in the likeness of sinful flesh. And saints, this is why the doctrine of the true humanity of Christ is of utmost importance, is it not? It matters that Christ is born of a woman, of a virgin woman. It matters that there is no trace of original sin found in Christ. For if Christ is not of true flesh, then we don't have one who can offset the curse of Adam. We don't have one, if Christ is not truly human, who can truly and properly represent us. This is why the Redeemer needed to be of flesh. God needed to come in the form of man in order that man would be truly redeemed. For what is not assumed is not healed. As Gregory Nazianzus would say. And saints, as we've been going through our Christology series in the evening, I hope one of the things that you've appreciated most concerning the person of Christ, that I've come to appreciate the most concerning the person of Christ, is the true humanity of Jesus Christ. That yes, we think of him as God, and he is truly God, very God of every God, but also we must add, he is very man of very man. He is everything that man is, save for sin. He is truly born of the woman. He is truly of the substance of Mary. How did he come about? The Holy Spirit takes the substance of Mary. And forms the human nature of Jesus Christ. So when we say things like he came for us. He lived for us and he died for us. 
He didn't come as simply a superhero. He didn't come as Superman where he had a divine mind and a divine will and a divine soul and simply came in human flesh. He wasn't merely a human body. He wasn't simply a man who had divine perfections. He didn't come in the semblance of man. He wasn't a phantom. He was truly man. Everything, saint, that you feel, the tears that you cry, the sadness that you experience, the happiness that you experience, when you get wearied and when you get tired, when you get tempted, Christ felt. Christ felt all those things. He came and he was just like me. That's the shocking thing of the true humanity of Christ. That he didn't just come for me, but he came as me. Save for sin. He came as me. He felt everything that I feel and experienced everything that I feel. Saints, do you get the weight of the humanity of Christ? The weight of your sin. And that if God simply came as God, you can never ever be redeemed. If it is God and God alone who lived, died, and rose on your behalf as God, how are you reconciled? God, our Savior, our Redeemer, needed to come as man. He did everything that I couldn't do. He lived for me, as me, save for sin, and where sin condemned me in the flesh. Christ in his flesh condemned sin. Where I could not condemn sin in my own flesh, Christ takes on my flesh, and he condemns sin in his flesh. Christ, as the second man conquered, where the first man, Adam, felled. Christ in his flesh defeated that which was undefeated in my flesh. Sin and death. Do you understand, saints, how much of a grip and a stronghold sin had on your flesh? Do you understand that there was nothing that you could do but sin when you were in Adam? That sin was such a force and power that it weakened you to the point where you couldn't even attempt to get up. You were every single day knocked out by sin. But Christ comes in the likeness of our sinful flesh. And as powerful as sin is, Christ overpowers sin. He comes in our flesh and defeats our greatest enemy. He curses sin in his flesh. He curses the curse and promises us that in his resurrection, the grave will not be our home forever. Christ in his flesh puts sin to death. And in his resurrection, he puts death to death. So we can say like Paul, oh, death, where is your sting? We mock, we laugh at death. What does death have on you, saints, for those who are in Christ Jesus? What does death have on your mortal body? It has nothing. 
you will win in the end for Christ has won on your behalf. And lastly, Paul shows us who's responsible for this great work of redemption. Who's the responsible for us being under the righteousness in Christ and not under the unrighteousness of Adam? Since we cannot save ourselves, since the law is incapable of saving us, where does the solution lie? Think about that when we spoke earlier about our greatest needs. If we do this, better government. If we do this, preserve our nature. If we do this, have better jobs. But there is no solution. Everyone has theories. Everyone has subjective opinions. But there is no solution to those problems. But the Bible gives us a solution to our greatest problem, does it not? The Bible gives us a solution. And the Apostle Paul in verse 3 screams the solution for us. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. Where's the solution lie? It lies in God and God alone. When we were in the darkness, God came and sent his son, Jesus Christ. God came in the rescue and saints, our salvation is of God and God alone. That is the one of the essential truths of the Christian faith is that salvation is of the Lord and him alone. And the New Testament screams this truth to us, does it not, saints? That where the Bible is constantly rebuking us where there is pride. The Bible is constantly shutting our mouths where there is boasting. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not as a result of work, so that no man may boast. Titus 3, 5, he saved us, not because of works done in, by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing and regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. John 1, verses 12 and 13, but to all who did receive him, who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were not born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. It is God alone who saves. It is God alone who redeems. And saints, one of the most disheartening things that I hear and listen, when I hear those Christians who believe that salvation is synergistic, that God plays his part and man plays his part, but it's ultimately man that has the final say. And the only reason that I'm elect it's because God looks down the tunnels of time. And because I choose God, he chooses me based off of my decision. But what ground of hope do those Armenians have? What ground of hope do those Christians have who say that I had some part to play in my salvation? What ground of hope do those Christians have who say that God, yes, did it, but he couldn't have done it without me. What ground of hope do they have? Saints, my hope is found not in my own works, not in my own cooperation, 
not in my own saying, yes, God, I will accept that grace that you are given to me. But my hope is found in the God who predestined me, who called me, who justified me, and who will glorify me. From start to finish, salvation is of God and God alone. He is the first mover. He is the causer of all of this. You played no part in your salvation, but it is of God and God alone. And that's the gist of these three verses of our text this morning. How are we released from sin's power and law's curse? It's of God and God alone. How is it that there is no condemnation or there once was condemnation? It's of God and God alone. And saints, as we come to the last verse of our text this morning, the Apostle Paul gives us the purpose of the Father sending forth his Son and the Spirit's application of the work of the Son to the believer. Verse 4, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Again, another glorious verse that we have before us. And the meaning of this verse is simply this, that God sends forth his son in the likeness of human flesh so that the righteous requirement of the law could be fulfilled in our flesh. Why did God send forth his son? Not for himself. The eternal son didn't need to become justified. He came out of love. For those whom he loved before the foundation of the world. It is Christ who obeys and fulfills the righteous demands of the law. And because of our union with him, that perfect righteousness is imputed to us. We didn't live his life. But via union with Christ, God sees us as we lived his life. John Keel summarizes it well. Christ has fulfilled the whole righteousness of the law. All the requirements of it. This he has done in the room instead of his people, not for himself. And it is imputed to him. It is given to him by virtue of a federal union between him and them. Christ is our federal head. Christ is our federal head. We are united to him. He being the head and they, his members and the law being fulfilled by him. It is reckoned all one as it was fulfilled in or by them, meaning that when Christ, when God, when the Father sees us, He sees us in the righteousness of His Son as we live that very righteous life of His Son. But we did it. But Christ did on our behalf. And hence, they are perfectly, personally, and legally justified. Christ covers all of our bases in His work of redemption. And as a result, in our flesh, where we once couldn't obey the law in our flesh, we can now properly offer perfect obedience to God because of Christ. We don't obey the law, of course, out of trying to earn merit of grace upon grace before God, to earn a perfect standing before holy God. But we obey the law for it's God holy because it is God's holy standing for holy living. And as we come to a close in our sermon today, what we have in Romans 8 verses 1 through 4 is a vivid and glorious picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you get tired, if, if, you have, if you get tired of listening or hearing of the gospel of Jesus Christ, then maybe you haven't been saved of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
if you cannot stand, if you, if it goes out one ear through the other, or maybe you get tired and you know this already, then maybe you have lost the fundamental truth of the gospel. And that is, it is to drive you to your knees, to you to worship Christ in light of this great work of redemption. That in Romans chapter 8, 1 through 4, we have every area of the gospel covered, do we not? We have the depravity of man put on display. Because of Adam and in Adam, we are under the power of sin and death. We could not do anything when we were in Adam. Sin has such a stronghold on our flesh. We have the sovereignty of God and salvation put on display. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. Our salvation, saints, is found in the mind and eternal will and good pleasure of God and not of yourselves. You couldn't have dreamt of this, where the hero comes and dies for the villain. Where the good guy comes and dies for the bad guy. The gospel is scandalous. The gospel, we couldn't have dreamt of it in a thousand light years. We have the work of Christ put on display where the father sent his son in the likeness of sinful flesh to do what? Not for himself, not to condemn sinners, but to condemn their greatest enemy, sin and death in his flesh. He didn't come to condemn you. He came to save you by condemning sin in his flesh. We see the spirit's work of redemption on display for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. The spirit takes that work of redemption accomplished by the God man, Jesus Christ, and he applies it to the believer so that we walk according to the spirit and not according to the flesh. And lastly, we see the result of Christ's work for his people on display. Christ condemned sin in his flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Simply this, Christ lived on the behalf of you. And like I've said in previous statements, that when the father sees you, he doesn't see you as the first man. He sees you in the second man. He sees you in Christ and Christ alone. And based off of Christ, his perfect life and work of obedience to God's law, based off his perfect death, based off his perfect resurrection, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. These four verses, saints, help us understand the gospel. They help us worship God in light of the gospel. But if we were to say, what is the diamond that shines the brightest of these four verses? It's simply this. It's unquestionably this. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If there's one thing you can take from this sermon, it is this. That there is therefore now no condemnation for you who are in Christ Jesus. And if you're an unbeliever here this morning, or maybe you are a lukewarm Christian, you might ask, how can God see me in his son and not in Adam? How can God see me in Christ, in the righteousness of Christ, and clothed in the righteousness of Christ, and not clothed in the sinfulness of Adam? How can I be freed from under the condemnation of God? And saints, the scandalous of the gospel is this. It's not by your works. It's not by your own doing. But it is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. How can you be freed from your sin by grace alone, through faith alone? in the perfect work of Jesus Christ alone. And for those who are here of the faith, you might know this, 
But I hope you feel this. I hope this soothes your weary souls. That in light of all the dramas that happen in life, in light of you constantly getting into sin, in light of you constantly questioning if you are of the faith, remember these words of the beloved Apostle Paul, that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So saints, be of good cheer and be of peace. Let's pray.